Now, we're in the middle of our study in Luke and Acts, uh, or as Mark likes to call it, Luke-Acts, because it's two-volume set. Um, And really, Luke and Acts is all about the history, the history of the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, the history of the early church, or as Acts puts it, what Jesus began to do, which is ironic, right? Because Jesus has already ascended to heaven. He's working through his people to establish his church, which you and I are a part of that. You know, in some respects, you and I are making history. And so as we've gone through these uh, first uh, couple of weeks as we've introduced and, and stepped into Acts, Mark did a great job last week talking about Acts and talking about Pentecost and what happened at that time and the change that we saw in Peter from the scared person who denied Jesus three times to the bold man who would now say, you are the one who crucified the Lord of hope, you know? And so, oh my goodness, what a, what a huge difference a resurrection makes, right? Isn't that true? Should make a big difference. And so what we're looking at now is we're looking at the history. And so what I, I've titled this sermon Lessons from History because I believe we should take note of what goes on in Acts in the early church. The early church and the book of Acts specifically as it begins in Acts chapter 1, it begins with the Great Commission. The purpose of the book of Acts is to show how the disciples interpreted and lived out that Great Commission. Everything that we're reading about is history toward that end that you and I as believers in Christ should hold on to with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Because if this is how they saw the Great Commission working out in their lives to make sure that Jesus is reached to the world, that should be our goal. That mission, that Great Commission hasn't changed in 2,000 years, okay? So this week we read chapters 6 through 9, or most of chapter 9, didn't read all of it, Uh, chapters 6 through 9, how many of you read this week? Okay, cool, that's awesome. Um, So chapters 6 through 9, I'm going to give you kind of a brief summation of this whole section of scripture as I try to do each week. For those of you who are new, watching online, maybe the first time you're coming across it, we're on on a journey right now as Heights Uh, Christian church of going through the Bible in five years, which means that we're reading together as a congregation six days a week, the scriptures, and then the seventh day we come together and our message is based upon what we've read together as a congregation. And so we're nearing the end of year three and have two more years to go to finish this journey. So in in chapter 6, what we see is we see this this breakdown in this early church because we had widows that the church was caring for. And the Hebraic Jews, the ones with the Hebraic Jewish background, were being cared for better than the Grecian Jews. Okay, so you had Grecian Jewish widows who were Messianic Jews. They believed in Jesus as a Messiah. And you had Hebraic Jews who were widows who had believed in Jesus as the Messiah. And there was this kind of schism in the church between those where the Grecian Jews weren't being cared for in quite the same way. There was compromise in the minds of a lot of people that if you took on a Greek culture, then you weren't fully Jewish. And there's speculation that that's kind of working itself out into the church. And so in order to make sure nobody was overlooked, they assigned seven people to be able to oversee the distribution to make sure no favoritism was being 
taking, taken care of and taken away from those who were equally members in Christ's church, but equally in need. And so those seven were done so that the 12, or the 12, including the one Matthias who has become part of the 12, could preach the word of God, could continue doing that. And that's what they've done. One of those seven is a man by the name of Stephen. And Stephen wasn't just good at distributing food to the widows who were there. He was good at proclaiming the message of Christ to those who were around him. So much so that it got him in trouble and got charges put against him where he had to mount a defense and ultimately would be um, martyred for his faith. We're going to take a much stronger look at that. That's where my passage of scripture is coming from today. From there, we see the church scattering because of a man by the name of Saul. And the church scatters uh, because his persecution goes very hard against God's people. Emboldened by the death of Stephen without repercussion, they decided, well, we can just do this all the Christians. And so they start doing that. And as that is happening, as the church is being scattered, we see Philip who finds his way to Samaria, and he begins ministering to the people of Samaria, where people start coming to know Jesus. And as people come to know Jesus, we see that Peter and John go up to Samaria to continue to preach the good news of Jesus Christ and take over the ministry that happens there in Samaria as many Samaritans are coming to know Christ. And while that happens, Philip makes his way down south, and as he does, he runs into an Ethiopian eunuch who is learning from Isaiah 53, And as he does, Philip comes up beside him because the Holy Spirit says, go next to that man right there. And starting from that passage, he tells him about Jesus, baptizes him, and is whisked away miraculously by the Holy Spirit. Ironically, if you go to Ethiopia today, they trace their lineage to this Ethiopian eunuch, the Christian heritage that's there. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? It's pretty amazing. And then Acts chapter 9, we see that Saul is still emboldened. He goes on and gets letters that allows him to imprison and persecute Christians. And he's on his way to Damascus. And this is where Jesus confronts him face to face. He falls down blind and is told to, to go to a certain place and to wait there. And at the same time, Jesus appears to himself to a, a believer Ananias and Ananias is told go over here to this man who's named Saul and I want you to pray for him and he's like uh Jesus do you know where you're sending me to this dude has been like really bad off persecuting Christians everywhere everybody knows this I know but he's my instrument my chosen instrument And I will show him how much he has to suffer for my namesake. And with that word, he goes off to great danger to himself to go and see this man whom Jesus has confronted. Upon seeing him, he prays for him. Scales come off the eyes of Paul. And Paul, right there in Damascus, in a place where he has arrest letters for Christians, begins to proclaim Christ to everybody around. So much so they have to get him out of the city because now they want to kill him too, through the wall at night, down in a basket. Makes his way to Jerusalem. And of course, the disciples don't want to meet with him either because he got a bad reputation. But Barnabas goes up to him and says, look, I was there. I saw him proclaim Christ boldly in Damascus. Convinces him and 
Paul begins to preach Christ in Jerusalem to the point that his life is in danger. And so the disciples send him away to Tarshish. And that's where we find him at. And it says at the end of the section of scripture that we read together that the church enjoyed a time of peace. That's the section of scripture that we read. A lot happened in that passage of scripture. A lot of history that is there. And we're supposed to be learning from history, right? This is the history of the early church. There's lessons for us to learn. And so we got three lessons from today's passage of Scripture that we really need to to hold on to as Christians that really affect us today in ways that we don't quite recognize. But I hope by the end of this day, you will. We're going to start in Acts chapter 6. In verse 8, it says, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. And these men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. And they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law, and they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin, and they produced false witnesses who testified this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. First thing that we can learn, first lesson of history that we can learn is that Christians who are followers, bold followers of Jesus Christ, will be accused falsely of many things. Christians who are bold followers of Jesus Christ will be accused falsely of many things. Notice what happened right there. They are saying that Stephen is speaking against Moses and speaking against the temple. These were important things for the Jewish people. The last thing they wanted to lose was their temple and their worship of the temple. They had fought hard to preserve that and anything that would destroy that is something they deemed an enemy. As a matter of fact, that's the whole reason that they ended up persecuting Jesus. They persecuted Jesus because they thought, hey, the Romans are going to come in and destroy the temple, and Jesus is preaching in this way. We don't want to do that. He became an enemy of the state specifically because they were worried about the worship in the temple. And now we hear the same charge being thrown At Stephen, as a matter of fact, at Jesus' trial, they said, hey, we have these false witnesses who've come forward to say, we heard him say he was going to destroy the temple and raise it up in three days. This is a reference, John chapter 2, Jesus did say that, but the temple he was talking about was his body. And we see that, that accusation coming forth in Matthew chapter 26, 
when before the high priest. This is what this man has said. And so we have these false accusations. And as a matter of fact, Jesus' response to those false accusations was not to say anything about it at all. He kept his mouth shut about it. He didn't say a word. He knew it was a lie. He knew what he meant what he, by what he said by that. Doesn't matter how anybody else was trying to interpret it. You see, today, we're going to do the same thing whether you realize it or not. Christians right now are being falsely accused of many different things in our culture. And the reason we're being accused of those things is for one purpose and one purpose only, so that we'll shut up. Peter and John, in the chapters we read before, Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 5, they heal a man by the gate of beautiful, by the power of God, not through their own power. They're brought before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin say, stop preaching in Jesus' name. Peter and John's response is, judge for yourself, whether it's right to obey you or obey God, but we cannot help but talk about what we've seen and heard. They threaten them, say, don't preach in this name anymore, and let them go. They continue their ministry. They get brought again to the Sanhedrin, again. We told you to stop preaching in this name. And we told you, we're going to do what God tells us to do. My paraphrase, by the way. And as a result of that, they were beaten and flogged. And their response was praising God that they were worthy to suffer for the name. Is that your and my response? Because the only thing they wanted them to do was shut up. Shut up about Jesus. Shut up about our role in killing him. Shut up about his resurrection. Shut up. Shut up. Shut up. Shut up. And for parents who don't like me saying that, that's what they're telling them to do. They're telling them to shut up. That's what they're wanting to do. That's a whole tactic is about that. Are we not experiencing that today? Let me ask you a question. Our issues are not the same issues as the people in the early church. The early church were in a Jewish culture that venerated the temple worship above everything else. So anything that came against that was a threat to their way of life. And the name of Jesus was a threat at least in their mind. Today, if you say something against same-sex marriage, you're called a homophobe. Today, if you say something about a man becoming a woman or a woman becoming a man or believing that God created gender and that gender is sacred because God created it, male and female, and that any change that we make to our bodies does not correlate with what God's word has said, you are called transphobic. If you do not believe that people should just come across the border for any and every reason, you are called xenophobic. If you don't agree with the current Black Lives Matter movement that is out there, which is anti-gospel, an anti-Christian in every way, shape, and form, then you are called a racist. Why do they call us those names? Because they want us to shut up about the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
No other reason. That's what they did with Stephen. That's what they're doing with you and me today. If you stand boldly for Christ, these are the names that you will be called. And in the court of public opinion, those names are only there to make you shut up. Doesn't matter if it's family members, co-workers, friends, or the government. We face the same thing that Stephen faced. If you boldly proclaim Christ, you're going to be falsely accused of a lot of things. We should expect this. The early church expected this. If you'll turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, we're going to look at some verses that are here. Starting in verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. See, this isn't the Peter, obviously, that was before the cross, because before the cross, he didn't want to suffer. After the cross, he's been beaten, he's been exiled, he's been imprisoned. Much different, isn't it? As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. And they think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Why are they heaping abuse? Because they want to be able to enjoy their sin without feeling guilty about enjoying their sin. They want no other voice to tell them that what they're doing is not right. That judgment is going to come as a result of that lifestyle. And we're called to do that as believers in Christ. Not out of hate, not out of vengeance, not out of anything else, but of love because Jesus died for them. They don't see it that way. They see you raining on their parade, not allowing them to enjoy to do what they're, what they're enjoying doing. And they heap abuse on you because they want you to shut up. Skipping down to verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. 
You know, one of the things that, I, that we talk about, that we talked about last week, was that how we're amazed at all the wonderful things that, that our congregation does during this season. We talked about the giving for the military sticks and the shoe boxes, and we have the, we have the uh, cards out now on the, uh, on the tree that's out there, and many of you are going to grab those to encourage the faithful in Christ. And the biggest charge we get from this world, isn't it, is that you're not loving enough, right? Because of all of these other sinful things that you don't want to see happen in this world, you don't love people enough. And yet Christians give more than more than the secular world around. The charges that they throw at us are oftentimes very baseless charges. And we're told that we're supposed to continue to do good in the midst of all of that. Because those good things stand as testimony that we're still wanting to do God's will, right? What stands up against these charges of hatefulness? Well, I'm going to keep going out to Third Street Ministry. And I'm going to keep preparing food for the homeless. And I'm going to keep doing the things that we're doing to reach others for Christ. And show love to my neighbor in all of these different ways. You want to shut somebody up who's talking to you about that? Ask how much they're giving to whatever cause you'll find oftentimes they're not doing much at all. They just want to shame you so you'll shut up. So, remember, we're going to be thrown with all types of false charges. As a believer, we ought to make sure that we're not doing those things because if we are doing the things that they're calling us against, our only responsibility is repentance. But outside of that, we should expect being name-called. We should just expect it from a world around us who wants to continue doing what they're doing. And so how does Stephen defend himself? Well, we're going to take a look at that. Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 1. And then the high priest asked him, are these charges true? To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. And after the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you're now living. And he gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. Your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they'll be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And God said, and afterwards, they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. And then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob, the father of the 12 patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with them. And rescued him from all of his troubles. And he gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him ruler over Egypt and all of his palace. And then a famine struck all of Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering. And our fathers could not find food. And when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. And on their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was. And Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. 
After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt where he and our fathers died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had brought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. And then another king who knew nothing about Joseph became ruler of Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw down their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for his father in his father's house. And when he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in his speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. And he saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. So he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them. But they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. And he tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you're brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And when Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. And when he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. And as he went over to look more closely, he heard the Lord's voice. I am the God of your fathers, the God of, ja- the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals. The place where you're standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt, and I've heard their groaning and have come to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses whom they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and a judge? He was sent to be the ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. This is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in this assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers and he received living words to pass on to us. But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. And they told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. And they brought sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of heavenly bodies. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of Molech and the star of your god Rephan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our forefathers had the tabernacle of testimony with them in the desert. It had, not been, it had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. And it remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. 
However, the most high doesn't live in houses made by men. As the prophet said, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all of these things? So what does Stephen do with these accusations that he has spoken against Moses and he's spoken against the temple and he has spoken against our way of worship? He gives a summary of the Old Testament, doesn't he? And he goes through the histories, much as we've been going through histories this year, right? In the last couple of years. And he takes us all the way from Genesis at the calling of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, all the way through when Solomon builds the temple. And we're looking up in 1 Kings. And he follows all that history all the way through. And here's the funny thing. You ever wonder where they're getting this idea of what that they know that this is Stephen's testimony? Luke is the most meticulous in detail of the gospel writers. As a matter of fact, many people who have tried to disprove Luke over time, who, have, who are famed archaeologists and the like, end up becoming believers in Christ because his testimony is so detailed. And when they go and they dig archaeologically, they find it exactly as Luke said, even though current theory beforehand seemed to contradict what Luke had said. Like, yeah, but then we dug, and then we looked in the cultures, and we looked at what was there, and guess what? It's exactly as he said. And knowing that Luke is the most meticulous in detail, and he's right about people and places and customs that happened at that time, where do you think that he got this detailed account of Stephen's defense? Paul himself. Paul was there. Paul would mention it later in Acts chapter 22. He said when Stephen was giving his testimony, I was there guarding the coats. And we'll read about that in just a moment. He heard that entire testimony so he could give it to Luke so that we have it preserved to know that what he said were these words. And remember, At this time, Saul is an enemy of Stephen. And yet that testimony stands in stark contrast to the charges that are brought against. And so how does Stephen respond? With the word of God. With a biblical worldview so that I can exalt Jesus Christ. So let me tell you, you're worried about Moses, you're worried about the tabernacle. Let me give you a history lesson that's in the word concerning all of this. I've shared with you before, I'll share with you again. It's a big concern. In order for you and I to be able to answer against the charges that will be brought against us, we have to know the word of God. History lesson number two. We have to know the word of God to be an effective witness toward our enemies against the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have to know the word. We have to know the word. There's no substitute. I've quoted to you guys before that about 10% of professing Christians, only 10% have a Christian worldview. New study has come out. Of our youth, only 2% have a Christian worldview. 
And this is where I get on to you a little bit. As a pastor, as a believer in Christ who wants our people to fall in love with the Word of God, we ask frequently, how many of you have read the passage of Scripture these past weeks that we've been going through? And somewhere between 25 and 33% of you raise your hands. That's what happened again today. Which means two out of three of you either aren't raising your hands and you have read it, which you should be raising your hands. I just don't want to raise my hands. We need to know. We're trying to hold you accountable. Or two out of three of you aren't reading the Word of God from a week-to-week basis and you're relying solely upon the summary that Pastor Mark or myself bring to you. You're supposed to be evaluating our words to make sure it lines up with the Word of God. We don't want to be found faithless or unfaithful to His Word, but an uncritical mindset to our Word is how cults get started and followed by so many people. And to have two out of three of you knowing that we're going through the Word of God as a congregation, every six days we should be reading the Word of God, and we're not reading more than about a chapter a day at the most, and you guys aren't doing it, How are you going to stand up against the attacks of the world who are going to call you all of those names and you're going to believe it because you don't have a biblical worldview to defend yourself against it? That's the only defense that Stephen has against his enemies right here is what the Word of God says. The only defense. And he was ready because he had a biblical worldview. Parents, you've got to be teaching your kids. 2%? That means 98% of our kids in churches from professed Christian families don't have a Christian worldview. What are you spending your time on? Those things won't help them when these charges come. And as a pastor over youth who has watched youth after youth after youth succumb to the charges of this world and the worldview that it purports, turning their back on Christ, I've watched it happen. Their only defense is the Word of God. Take it seriously. Get in the Word. Next week, there should be 75% of you raising your hands. I'm not talking to the new people who are online. I'm not talking to the new people who this is your first week here. But I'm saying if you're here, a member of this church, and you're saying, this is, I'm excited. We're going through the Word in five years' time. Are we going through the Word or is me and Mark going through the Word and some of you are just deciding to ride our coattails in what we're telling you? Because that ain't going to cut it. It's the only defense that you have is the Word of God and knowing how to rightly divide that Word of truth so that when me and Mark preach, you can say the amen to what we say. And we want you to. We want to be found faithful. Number two, you have to know the Word of God. Have to know the Word of God. Picking up where we left off, Acts chapter 7. Verse 71. We don't have 71 there. Verse 51. See, you could have caught me right there. (laughs) You stiff-necked people. 
with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you've betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels but have not obeyed it. And when they heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and more deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. I would say some of you are a little uncomfortable with this passage of Scripture. Because we don't think that this is how we're supposed to witness to other people about Jesus. You with uncircumcised hearts. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever not a prophet that you didn't persecute and kill? We're going to say, Stephen, Stephen, our, our whole idea of evangelism, we just need to build bridges and be friends with people. We want them to respect us and love us and care for us so that they might have an ear for Jesus Christ. Are we dare going to say that this, where the scripture says, him full of the spirit. If he's full of the spirit, guess what? He ain't doing the wrong thing. It's the same spirit that we see in Jesus because these words mirror what we see in Matthew 23. So if you will, turn with me real quick so that you can see the words of Christ and how Christ witnessed sometimes incredibly boldly to a lost and dying world. Chapter 23, verse 29. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our forefathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding the blood of the prophets. And so you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your sin, the sin of your forefathers. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and teachers, and some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will become that will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, all of this will come upon this generation Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you kill the prophets and stone those who send you, who are sent to you. How often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chick under her wings, but you were not willing. 
Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's not the, that's not the kind of witnessing we're, we're accustomed to hearing, is it? It's not the type of evangelism classes that we go to, right? We go to those evangelism classes. Let's build bridge. Let's have this other. Here's Jesus being very bold to the teachers, to the Pharisees. And let me tell you something. Jesus wants them saved. He doesn't want them to go to hell. This is a stern, grave warning against their sin and their hypocrisy. This is not him enjoying denouncing them. This is him saying, how are you going to escape hell if this is what you're like? Upon you will come all of this. You brood of vipers. You understand how bad you really are. You and I are afraid to say that, aren't we? It's not politically correct to say to a world around us. Because rightfully so, we want to preserve the integrity of the image of God of each person that we see, right? But man, some people need to be warned harsh. How many of you have lessons that you have learned the hard way that you would have learned no other way unless it came that hard way? Raise your hand, seriously. There are some times that you and I need to be harsh to those who are not receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ in truth and in love. And arguing with them and letting them know their destination if they do not repent is not hatred toward those people, no matter how harshly that message might have to be conveyed. Otherwise, we're telling Jesus that he was wrong in Matthew 23, and we're telling Stephen that he was wrong in Acts chapter 7, when in both times, Jesus only operated through the Spirit, and we see that Stephen was operating through the Spirit at that time. There are times where you and I are going to have to lay it down to our loved ones whom we care about, to our co-workers whom we care about, who are blinded by the things of this world, who are bought into all of these lies and need to hear the truth of the gospel of Christ. We need to be able to tell them that hell is real and that that's where they're going to go, separated from God forever, if they continue down this path. That's not what Jesus wants, but that's what they're choosing by not considering him. Lesson number three. Speaking the truth boldly is not always received by those to whom we share it with. Speaking the truth boldly is not always received to those whom we're sharing it with. It results in the death of Christ as they see him as a threat. Although God's plan, he's raised three days later. What you gonna do now? And so Stephen speaks boldly, not worried about what's going to happen to him. 
When I was in my teenage years, I was scared to death of death before I came to know Jesus Christ. I'm dead serious about it. Grew up, as many of you did, during the Reagan years, where there was this, this cloud of the possibility of mutually assured destruction. How many of you remember that? The idea that there could be a nuclear war. If the movie War Games come out. It's an HBO special on Nostradamus' prophecies, and it was very, very apocalyptic in the sense that they thought nuclear war was going to happen, it was going to blow up uh, New York, and had all these things. And I wasn't a believer at the time. It scared me to death. I didn't know what to believe about what the future was going to be. I'm at 18, 19 years old, crying myself to sleep because I fear what death is going to bring. I'm not lying to you. That's an honest to goodness truth. When I came to know Jesus Christ, everything about that changed. I have never feared death since then. It's not that I've never thought about it. It's not that I've never thought about the implications of what it would mean for my wife or my kids or anything like that if I passed away. But death never was something I've gone to sleep worrying about ever again after I came to know Jesus. It was a great lifting. It was like, wow, there's life after this life. It's the hope of Christ that has sustained me through all of this time. I am fearful, and so I'm about to speak a hard truth to you guys. I am fearful concerning our reaction to death in our culture right now. We are surrounded with it. You guys hear it on the news every day, how many coronavirus things we have going on. And I want to ask a simple question. Because I mentioned this a few weeks ago when I was up here. I'm still just as convicted about it. There are some people I still haven't seen for the last 8 to 10 months. You remind me of me before I knew Jesus. And is that the type of Savior that's ever going to convince anybody else that Jesus saves? We have done everything that we can to obey the commands of God of meeting together as Hebrews chapter 10 tells us to do. Do not forsake the gathering together of believers, but encourage one another all the more as we see the day of judgment. That's what it is, the day of judgment approaching. We have the light of life right now. We have 250,000 people who have died and we're sitting here worried about our life instead of wondering about their eternity. What's wrong with this picture? I've been here. Mark has been here ever since. We closed down for a very brief time. We've come back. We're doing everything responsibly. If you're sick, stay home. We don't want you here. We love you. But if you're not sick, come here. 
Or who's going to believe that you believe in a, in a Lord who has conquered sin and death? What's the worst thing that could happen to you if you come here? I could get coronavirus and die. You're going to die anyway. We have people who are outside, which I love you guys. Thank you guys for being outside. We have a place outside that if you're worried about getting us infected, those are people that are out there saying we're in infected areas, but we want to be in fellowship. So we have a place in the breezeway for you so that you can come and be a part of that. If you're worried about it, they're all wrapped up in coats outside, but they're in fellowship because God commands it. What's happened to us as believers I'm going to be here every week. And if by some chance I succumb to the coronavirus, you know where I'm going to be? I'm going to be with Jesus. And people who see me walk this faith will know that I believe that with all of my heart. Because I've been here since day one. And the fear that is gripping our nation needs the hope that you and I carry And we can't be afraid to get out and share it to the world who needs to hear. We just can't. We should be around one another. And the world is telling us if somebody gets sick, you quarantine them for 14 days. I don't read that in the scriptures. You do your own word study. Look it up. Look how we're supposed to treat the sick. As believers in Jesus Christ, look it up. Look up every sick reference in the New Testament on how believers are supposed to treat other believers who are sick. Does it say leave them to themselves? Stay away from them? Treat them like lepers and don't get near them? I don't see that anywhere in the Scriptures. Why are we taking the prescription of the world for something that Jesus has talked to us about specifically? I can't tell you and I can't tell the world how they're supposed to react. But I can tell you as a believer in Christ how you're supposed to react because we follow Jesus. Which means I'm going to sing on Sundays and I'm going to gather together and I don't care what anybody else says and I don't care what it costs. But until your Savior is big enough to overcome this, nobody else will believe in the same Jesus that is testified to us in the Scriptures and promised to us. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, don't fear those who can destroy the body and can do nothing else, but fear him who after the body is destroyed can throw a person's soul into hell. Fear him. Why is Jesus saying that? Because he doesn't want anybody to go to hell. And this life isn't the end-all, be-all of it all. It's just not. And you and I, holding on to that with all of our our heart, betrays the fact of what we're putting our hope in. Do we really believe these words in Romans chapter 8? Do we really believe it in such a way that we can live it? Romans chapter 8, end of the passage. Verse 31. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life and is at the right hand of God who is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or coronavirus? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you believe that? Are we going to start living that in a place where right now, The rest of the world is scared to death of death. We have the answer. We have the cure. Are we brave enough to get out of those places of security to share a dangerous message to a world who might reject it? And call us names and put ourselves at risk where the worst thing that could happen to us is that we'd die. You know, the writer of Romans is Paul. Same one we saw converted this past week. Same one we're going to be reading about this whole time in Acts. Watch what he puts himself through all for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if this is how the disciples understood the Great Commission, can you and I understand it any differently? We have the hope of Jesus Christ. We have the hope of Jesus Christ. We should start living like we have that hope. Would you stand with me? As believers in Jesus Christ, we need to be in community. You need to be here. You need to be, on, you need to be online. I'd, I'd rather be here in person. I really would. If you're not sick, you should be here. Worst thing that could happen to you is you'll die. I, I'm, I'm not joking. And I can tell you, we've been here since, what? May when we opened back up again. So we're at six months into this. Nobody here has died of COVID. Nobody. Zero. And we have many who are in the, the dangerous categories, Right? who continually come. And I I so admire your faithfulness. All because it's important for us to be obedient to Christ above all things so that we can show where our hope really lies. You know, if you're sick and you're at home, we would like to know just so that we can come by and pray for you. 
because we want to do that. So if you're at home right now and you're sick or you're dealing with sickness, please drop us a line. Please call the church office. Please let us know. Please email us because it is our desire to go to you and pray for you as the scripture commands. And if you're not sick, you need to be holding out that hope of Jesus to everybody around you. Because everybody is scared to death of death. And we have the answer in Christ. The only answer in Christ. And if that's not true, you're not going to be able to stand. Remember our three lessons. Lesson number one. People are going to accuse you if you're standing for Jesus falsely of many things. Oh, you're not being loving because you're going to spread coronavirus. I'm being loving because I'm obeying Jesus. And I believe he did get to define what love is. My only defense against those things is my knowledge of the word of God. We need to know the word of God so that we know the will of God. And number three, if we share boldly the truth of God's truth, not everybody's going to receive it. And until those things are truths in our hearts, we're never going to be bold enough in our confidence in Jesus Christ to walk forward when we run into the current problems we are running into in our culture and our current medical crisis. And I want us to stand strong because we have the answer. The only answer that matters. God, I just pray for today. Lord, I pray for... Everybody in this place, dear Lord, everybody who's online, everybody who's out in our breezeway, Lord. God, I I pray in the name of Jesus that you will give us great boldness to live for you. There are people who are dying right now of coronavirus. And instead of being worried about getting coronavirus, we should find out whether or not we can get them the gospel. That should be our one and only concern as believers in Jesus Christ because we know this body is going to waste away and every single one of us are destined for death. But praise be to God that Jesus Christ has conquered both death and sin and the grave, Lord. And because of that, we can walk victoriously through a crisis that everybody else is scared about. Lord, help us to walk in that victory. Help us to be bold in visiting the sick. Help us to be bold in praying for those who need prayer. Help us be bold in ministering in the grace of community as you have commanded us to do, O Lord. We know the world doesn't want it. The world is trying to tell us to shut up. God, you have the only hope in Jesus Christ. And we would not be doing our duty before you, our commitment for spreading the gospel of Christ by cowering in a corner and hoping that this goes away at some time. You've called us to move now. We are born in this time known by you, not by accident for this moment to spread your gospel to those who don't know. Help us to do that boldly, Lord. Help us to hold out the word of life. Help us, dear Heavenly Father. And if death were to take us, may we rejoice that we know you. And death is not the end. May we walk forward in this confidence in you, Lord. In a world that is scared so that they may see Jesus in us. And we pray it in Jesus' name.
Amen.